stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, David Mitchell, is best known for his intricately plotted novels, ones that adventure across the globe from Ireland and Mongolia to New York and Iraq, but also novels that span multiple time frames, from an 18th century Dutch trading post in Nagasaki Harbor to a futuristic dystopian Korea. From the get-go, David Mitchell's 1999 debut novel, Ghostwritten, received the John Llewellyn Rees Prize for the best work of British literature by an author under 35, a book that A.S. Byatt declared as one of the best debut novels she had ever read. In 2003, Mitchell was selected as one of Granta's best young British novelists, and in 2007, after the critical acclaim for his novels Cloud Atlas and Black Swan Green, Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. David Mitchell is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his latest novel, Bone Clocks, a book that not only travels the globe and travels through time, but also takes time itself as its central subject matter. Welcome to Between the Covers, David Mitchell. Thank you very much, David. It's great to be here, and thanks also for that enthusiastically researched introduction. Well, Let's start with time. What what about time compelled you to make a book that not only spans a great amount of time, but also contemplates it? Time? Wow. This is uh, straight in at the deep end, isn't it? Um, how could you not be interested in time? It's like being a fish and not being interested in the sea. I mean, it's where we live. It's... Famous, I think an, an, an American astrophysicist, Wheeler, said this. It, it's what stops everything happening at, all at once. It's it's fascinating stuff. We live in it. It, it we live through it. Uh, it ages us and changes us and turns us from tiny, tiny, tiny little one-celled being to birth, seven stages of man into the care home if we're lucky, old age being a privilege that is denied to many. Um, isn't it interesting? Aren't you interested in time? I am very interested in time. <laughs> we were born in the same year, and you've, oh, you've right. mentioned that. Right. Oh, that... you're not younger than me. That's because <laughs> you haven't been on a five-week book tour. That's, what... <laughs> That's true. Uh, but, and, but you've mentioned Bone Clocks as being, in a, in a way, a midlife crisis or a taking of account at midlife. Is, oh. is, that, is that true? Yeah, there's something in that. Um, maybe not so much time in a metaphysical sense, but mortality in mm -hmm. a... Uh, in a visceral, physical sense, um, is maybe what the book's heart is. Uh, and one of the questions that you propose is, 
what would what sort of Faustian bargain would would you be willing to accept to potentially not have to confront mortality? Sure, in a sense, to make yourself immune from the uh, uh, aging side effects of time. Yes, yes, I do. Uh, would you be willing to have your conscience amp- amputated if this deal meant that other people had to suffer for it? Mm. Would you be willing to? make the deal if every 10, 15 years you were willing to fake your own, you had to fake your own death to, and move on and start somewhere else before people began to notice you weren't getting any older. Uh, and for those who haven't read Bone Clocks, what, what is a bone clock exactly? It's us. You and I are bone clocks. Um, there's a cult, a kind of a cult in the novel who have or do engage in in this kind of a Faustian pact with uh, with a with a Gnostic occult machine set up many centuries ago, uh, and you can't tell from their faces how many years they've lived and how many years they approximately they have yet to live. Whereas uh, with our faces, you can you can guess our ages because uh, our faces tell the time of our lives. Uh, so they disparagingly call us bone clocks hmm. because they are not bone clocks. Uh, well, one of the really interesting things about bone clocks and about a specific bone clock is the book seems at first glance really like an epic. I wrote down a list of, uh, and I'm sure I didn't get them all, but we're in Cambridge, we're in Switzerland, we're in Manhattan, we're in Vancouver, we're in Russia, Australia, Colombia, Shanghai, Iraq. And Iceland. Wow, I clocked up the air miles, didn't I? Yeah, and and we spend time in the England of Margaret Thatcher, the Iraq of now, and the Ireland in the, of the future when we run out of oil. But if you look closer at the skeleton of the book or the spine of the book, it really spans the course of one specific person's life, mm-hmm. which almost feels hidden within all of what, all of this movement. Mm. Tell us about this person and and essentially this person's bone clock that we're we're following in the course of the book. I like your metaphor because skeletons are hidden and Holly Sykes, the protagonist of the first and sixth parts and the narrator of those parts is kind of the skeleton of the book. Uh, she sometimes goes off camera, but uh, but pretty soon the camera finds her again. Uh, in, this, in the first section we meet her as a teenage punkette runaway. In the second section, she's away for a while, but the protagonist kind of stumbles across her and is attracted to her in a Swiss ski resort in the early 90s. Uh, In the third section, we meet her kind of pretty much immediately because she's the partner of the narrator of that section. Uh, The narrator's a war reporter um, back from the Battle of Fallujah, in Iraq in 2004, back for a family wedding on the south coast of, uh, of England at Brighton. Uh, and uh, Holly is the mother of his child, his daughter, his six-year-old. Uh, in the fourth section, she is a very improbable best-selling writer uh, and a colleague, well, a first arrival uh, of the, the narrator of that section. He's a past his best um, British novelist of fading powers who is pining for the glory days when he was the wild child of British letters and straddled the bestseller lists on both sides of the Atlantic. (laughs) Uh, And he meets Holly 
and feels contempt for at first, but at festivals and it's kind of this world. It's a it's a novella set in the book tour, uh, monstrously vain novelist's world. Uh, the fifth part, that's almost. I mean, if I start talking about that, we'll take up the whole forty-five minutes of the program. I fear, but uh, that's a more fantastical part where the laws of physics and nature get bent and then broken and then exploded. Uh, and she's Holly is wrapped up in that. She's in her late forties, early fifties by then, I think. And then we meet her in the final part um, as a grandmother and as a guardian of a ward of. And of course, she has a she has a seventy year old woman's body by then, uh, in the west of Ireland. Um, and you originally had a different structure. I, I read that you actually were thinking of having each chapter be a year of Holly Sykes's life yeah, originally. Yeah. yeah, it didn't work for the first eight years. She didn't do a lot because she was uh, a toddler and an infant and then a very young girl. And vocabulary is limited at that age. I that might have worked. Problem is we read short stories in a different way to how we read a novel. It's not that we skip stuff. Well, we might skip stuff if the novel's no good, but uh, you read a short story more like a poem. Every line needs to count and you sort of study it and, 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 and you take everything in. Whereas with a novel, we have different gears of attentiveness, I think. And a novel made of short stories, especially one after another after another. You basically never know when to sit up and pay attention or when not to. And when I read your novels, I consider you in, in the maximalist school of, of literature. And yet it's, I wondered if you are compelled by constraint-based writing, if, if, if there was something about setting out with the constraint of trying to write every year or coming up with some sort of substructure for the, for the novel. Um, helps you even in a maximalist enterprise? Oh, constraints are great. Uh, you can't really have originality without original constraints. Um, constraints are your friend. They're a pain in the butt, but they're your friend. Uh, um, no, it, 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 it wasn't that the constraint was too great. It's just, it, it, it just, it just wasn't working. and It wasn't the right one. It wasn't the right constraint. So, yeah, I, I, I traded in that constraint for a constraint of six novellas. Uh, it was going to be seven, but uh, I thought I could do the first Holly's girlhood uh, in implanted backflashes in the later ones and thereby save the book 100 pages, uh, which, which I think was the right move. Uh, it, it's, it's already pretty hefty. You have a particular knack and talent for writing a certain type of man in your books, I believe. And Thank you. I, I was trying Do to, I? Yes, I was trying yeah, to figure out what this, what this type of man was. Okay. But I would call him ethically impaired <laughs> and often comically and horribly self-consumed. <laughs> but yet, despite this, it, it just addictively delightful to spend time with. Thank and, you. And you've done that in, in multiple novels where you just want to spend time with these somewhat horrible male characters. And I, I was curious what it was like. It feels like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like Bone Clocks has the most sustained female protagonist for you mm, in, no, in um, your work. It does. It certainly does, yeah. And I was, I was energy. interested in how that was. Was that, was that an easy transition or was that uh, a, a challenge and a difficulty for you? I, it was a, um, a challenge. It's, it's quite a tall order to write across the gender divide in a sustained way, uh, in a 
psychologically probing way. Probably even harder for men to write women than for women to write men, I think, for various... Well, because we live in a, in a sexist society and they need to work out how we think to protect themselves in a way that men do not necessarily, in fact, quite rarely reciprocate. Uh, so, yes, it was a challenge, but that's why it's attractive. That was, uh, that was a part of the constraint. And I knew there'd be a lot of men in it anyway, so a bit of... Well, a lot of female energy in a sort of yin-yang balancing kind of way was 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 a it seemed an intelligent way to go about the novel uh my wealth uh my wife helped me basically she's my secret weapon and she just <laughs> well read. i think you pulled it off thank you i hope so um i never know but i hope i did and uh, and, and and i've met a few people who have assured me i have done and not all of them male which is reassuring yeah Ursula Le Guin, in her review of, of Bone Clocks, she compared some of your style in it to Virginia Woolf. And she said, while she does stream of consciousness, you do stream of self-consciousness. And she was <laughs> looking at, at um, The Waves, which is told in Past Tense, Virginia Woolf's book, and, and also sort of marveling at Bone Clocks being a book about time, but a book that has no past in the sense that it's written in the perpetual now, in the mm. present tense. Mm. Did you know you were going to write Bone Clocks in the present tense? And is that somehow related to the theme? Yeah, if you write in the present tense, especially first person present tense, in a way it can't not be about time. Novels have certain default themes. Time is one, because novels take place over time. You can't have it happening all at once. It's a linear... Uh, sequential art form, um, unlike a painting which is simultaneous. Novels are also sort of automatically about identity. I mean, you've got people in them. Uh, you're making a person in them. A novel can't really not be about identity. It can't not be about memory either for the same reason. You can spot these default themes on uh, book descriptions on back jackets when the author and the writer or the editor aren't quite sure how to describe the novel. So you time and time again get sort of uh, an enchanting meditation on identity, memory and time. Yeah. <laughs> how often have you read that? Uh, <laughs> a million times. Um, not knocking it. Uh, I think I've probably used the same formula. Uh, but uh, yeah, my last novel was also, uh, that was third person present tense. Uh, I kind of like that constraint. You move forward at the speed of time. You're sort of like a surfer who never falls off the surfboard uh, on the wave of now. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, there are costs to it. Uh, narratorial omnis uh, omniscience, forget it. That's not going to happen, for one thing. Uh, you are chained to that surfboard. But it's kind of a, it's sort of a surfboard I like. I think for the next one, I'd, I'd best stop it now. I've kind of done enough present tensing and I'd sort of... Maybe go back to the past. Maybe third person past. Maybe do something really traditional. That, that that could be fun. Well, you mentioned the loss of omniscience and retrospection in 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 the constant present tense. But you sort of solve that a little bit with having uh, the part of the story be people who are immortal. And you mentioned the cults. And on the one hand, the the bone clock is about a single human life. On the other hand, it is an epic fantastical battle between oh, between immortal time travelers right sort but, of they're but, time travelers by virtue of the fact that they don't really ever properly die uh, they're not time travelers in the sense that they have a tardis or a time machine right that's a good point and but what's interesting is that 
you, you've said before that this fantastical element has allowed you to show the reader the way that human beings would be seen from time's perspective. Oh, did I say that? That sounds quite clever. Does that seem familiar to you? Can you talk about how one of the points of view by providing these figures in the book is one to, to see ourselves from the perspective of time? Yeah, sure. Uh, my horologists have metalives. So that's the chain of lives that they live. So the horologists are the more vegetarian immortals. Their immortality does not cost anybody anything. They simply die. They do age. They die. But however they die, 49 days later, they find themselves waking up in the body of a very sick child who has actually died, so the soul has vacated the building or the body. Uh, and the, the horologist's soul then enters that one. The horologists don't know why this happens. It's not an act of will. Uh, they can't get out of it. They're kind of stuck in a kind of groundhog day, in a sense. Uh, but they have metalives. And, of course, you know, uh, Marinus, who's, who's a character both in my last novel, where he was having his 28th lifetime in 1799, 1800, and is now on his or her 34th lifetime, I think, in... in, in about 2024, 20, I think we meet her. Uh, for them, the human lives, even of humans they love, it's kind of like cats that we own. You know, we own a sequence of cats who maybe live seven, eight, nine years, maybe 13, 14, if we're lucky. Or if you live in West Cork, where I live, they appear to vanish after about two years and go and live in the house of the village mad cat lady because the food there's better. Um, but our lives are that brief for them. So the horologists, in fact, there's one whose meta-life has already lasted millennia. Um, and their viewpoint is time's viewpoint. And, of course, they're sentient beings. So unlike time, which is an abstract continuum, the horologists can actually talk about it. Hmm. It's, and, and it feels like a sneaky way around the, the present tense conundrum. I'm a sneaky writer, David. You, I'm a sneaky, I think you are. Uh, uh, I'm a sneaky <laughs> cat. <laughs> well, let's let our listeners hear some of the, the prose from Bone Clocks. Okay. Well, let's write this. I've never read it before, but we'll see how it goes. It's been okay. exciting. Good luck. Say three, two, one, action. Three, two, one, action. Underfoot, old leaves crackle and squelch, while overhead, brand new leaves ooze unbundling from swollen buds, and the wood is blue-toothed with birdsong. At the base of a trunk, the girth of a brontosaurus's leg, I find a gravestone. Here's another, and another smothered by ivy. Blythewood's campus cemetery, then, is not a regimented matrix of the dead, but a wood whose graves are sunk between and nourish the roots of these pines, cedars, yews and maples. Esther's glimpse was precise, tombs between the trees. Rounding a dense holly tree, I come across Holly Sykes and think, ha, who else? I haven't seen her since my visit to Rye four years ago. Her cancer is still in remission, but she looks gaunter than ever, all bone and nerve. Her head wrap is the red, green and gold of the Jamaican flag. I scuff my feet to let her know someone's coming, and Holly slips on a pair of sunglasses that conceal much of her face. Good morning, I venture. Good morning, she echoes neutrally. I'm sorry to bother you, but I was looking for Crispin Hershey. He's right here. Holly gestures at the white marble stone. Crispin Hershey, 
Reuter, 1966 to 2020. Short and sweet, I remark, clicheless. Yes, he wasn't a big fan of flowery prose, and a more peaceful, more Emersonian resting place, I say, I can't imagine. His work is urban and his wits urbane, but his soul is pastoral. One thinks of Trevor Upward in Echo Must Die, who finds peace only in the lesbian commune on the Isle of Muck. Holly inspects me through her dark lenses. She last saw me through a fug of medication, so I doubt she'll recall me, but I'll stay prepared. Were you a colleague of Crispin's here at the college? No, no, I work in a different field. I am a fan, though. I've read and reread Desiccated Embryos. Ah, he always suspected that book would outlive him. Attaining immortality is easier than controlling its terms and conditions. A blue jay swoops onto a fungus-ruffled tree stump by Hirsch's grave, emits a volley of harsh jeers and then a breathy trill. They don't make those birds where I'm from, says Holly. It's a blue jay, I say, or a Cyanuschita cristata. The Algonquin name was Cideso, and the Yakama call it a Jvashjre, but their territory was over on the Pacific, so now I'm merely showing off. Holly removes her sunglasses. Are you a linguist? Mm, by default. I'm a psychiatrist, here for a meeting. You? I'm just here to pay my respects. Holly bends down, takes an oak leaf from the grave and puts it into her purse. Well, nice talking with you. Hope your meeting goes well. The blue jay threads a flight path through stripes of brightness and stripes of mossy dark. Holly begins to walk off. So far, so good, I say, but the day's about to get trickier, I fear. Holly is struck by my strange answer and stops. I clear my throat. Miss Sykes, we need to talk. Down come the shutters. Out comes her hard-scrabble Gravesend accent. I don't do media. I don't do festivals. She steps backwards. I've retired from all of that. A frond of pine tree brushes her head and she ducks nervously. So no, whoever you are, you can... I'm Iris Fenby this time around, but you know me as Marinus. She freezes, thinks, frowns and looks disgusted. Oh, for Christ's sakes. You, Leon Marinus, died in 1984. He was Chinese. And if you have a Chinese parent, then I'm, I'm Vladimir Putin. Don't force me to be rude. That's rude. Dr. Yuleon Marinus was indeed childless Holly, and that body died in 1984. But his soul, this I addressing you now, is Marinus, truly. A dragonfly arrives and leaves like a change of mind. Holly's walking off. Who knows how many Marinuses she's met, from the mentally ill to fraudsters after a slice of her royalties. You have two hours missing from 1st of July 1984, I call after her, between Rochester and the Isle of Sheppey. I know what happened. She stops. I know what happened. Despite herself, she turns to face me again, properly angry now. I hitched. A woman picked me up and dropped me off at the Sheppey Bridge. Please leave me alone. Ian Fairweather and Heidi Cross picked you up. I know you know those names, but you don't know you were at the bungalow that morning, that day, when they were killed. Oh, whatever. Post a whole story at bullshitparanoia.com. The crazes will give you all the attention you need. Somewhere, a lawnmower chugs into noisy life. Look, you digested the radio people, you sicked it up, you mixed in your own psychoses, and you made an occult reality show starring yourself, just like that wretched girl who shot Crispin. I'm going now. Don't follow or I'll call the cops. Birds crisscross and warble in the stripes of light. 
That went well, sub says Orshima, the unseen and ironic inside my head. I sit down on the Blue Jay's stump. It's a beginning. You've been listening to David Mitchell read from his latest book, Bone Clocks. We've been talking about a couple different ways you're a sneaky writer, David Mitchell. But the way that I think you're the sneakiest... My wife could give you a few more, but go on. Okay. So uh, the way that I think you're sneakiest is that I think with all of your novels and Bone Clocks included, the first thing you feel is that you're, you're going on a fun adventure. You're engaged, you're immersed, and you're, on, you're going on a uh, delightful journey of some sort. However, with Bone Clocks, I feel like you're sneaking a, a whole lot of darker themes in, into this, even though we're getting this, this primary feeling of, of pleasure. And it was interesting, again, in the Ursula Le Guin review, she calls it a freewheeling inventiveness, your style, but also then says that that death is at the heart of the novel. And and I, I was look, thinking if you list all of the things that are in, in Bone Clocks, there's a whole bunch of things that you touch on, the debacle that is Iraq that is ongoing, uh, the post-oil climate change apocalyptic future, the potential death of publishing, uh, class anxiety. And you find a way to package this and sneak it into the book and contemplate it while making us almost feel like it's not happening at the same time. So what what are you doing there? Well, firstly, thank you. Uh, that's I, I could weep with gratitude at the intelligence of your remark. Thank you. Yes, I do do all of that because I want to, because these themes matter to me and because I wanted to write an omnivorous novel with all these things in. Uh, it is replete with ideas. I am at heart a novelist. I'm not at heart an academic or, 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 or a critic or a scholar or, or a great big thinker or even a small thinker. I, I'm, I'm a novelist, but novels need ideas, like bread needs yeast and a diet needs vitamin C, of course. Uh, what's going on? I'm, I'm middle-aged. My relationship with, with mortality needs, needs a reboot. Uh, this young guy who I'm used to look, who I'm used to seeing in the mirror, is no longer there actually, and you need to handle that, and you need to think about it. Uh, it's serious stuff. Mortality is not an abstract over the horizon anymore. It's um, it's it's in your kneecaps, it's in your back, it's in your lungs. Um, well, my favorite section was the last section. It was it was really amazing that. The, it's the, the section that takes place in Ireland, it's post-oil climate collapse. It's a near future. But what's really fascinating to me about it is we're in this freewheeling sense of expanding possibility, and then we land in this place of real limitation. And all the things that we take for granted or took for granted are no longer possible. Or if they're possible, they're extremely difficult. Um, I was wondering if that was uh, a direction you're you're going with future work if there was something very fascinating about uh the that limitation of place and capacity of those characters after what they'd been through in the first five sections yeah yeah um holly well she's an old woman she can't walk but it's a future without cars pretty much uh and so she doesn't go she doesn't leave within a mile and a half radius of, of, of the opening of that whole final novella compared to all the the almost squanderous globe trotting that goes on in earlier sections of the book. 
Um, and, that's, and those are the terms of the world. It's sort of more like the 17th century than the 21st in a way. Um, it's a constraint. And as we've said, uh, constraint and originality are linked. Hmm. Um, and, and I worry that it might be accurate. I worry that that act of futurology may be something we're condemning our children to, certainly our grandchildren. Uh, if we don't invent nuclear fusion pretty darn quickly, I, I don't see how this world, the studio, our aviation, our agriculture, our manufacturing, the m- means by which we meet our plethora of rather ev- of ever-expanding human needs, uh, I don't see how we'll meet them without oil, uh, without fossil fuels to power the electrical grid that makes it all happen. I also didn't want to finish the book with the fifth I didn't want to finish the book with a climactic battle I wanted to show that actually whatever happens to you there's always an afterwards and an afterwards of, of that and an after that and an after that until you die um, it's not so much that I set out to sort of create this future dystopia it's simply that I did set out to show the parabola the arc of Holly's life uh, including when she's an old woman and if you do that then you have to show uh, the world in which she's spending uh, those last few years uh, and that's the world that I fear she, the, the 2040s might look like. Hmm. I hope I'm wrong. We'll see. If we're lucky, we'll see. Yeah. In in the review for uh, Roberto Bolaño's 2666 by Jonathan Lethem, he, hmm. he talks about, I don't know if you've read 2666. I've read I haven't, no. But I'd highly recommend it if okay. you haven't. But he talks about maybe Bolaño bringing in a new type of writing, which he called post-national writing. I felt like post-national writing could uh, refer to to your enterprise as well, and I wondered if how that struck you, that word, both in terms of the capacity now in the freewheeling present of being able of of the interconnectivity of the world, but also in the in the post-apocalyptic time, it would require a post-national solution to figure that one out because state borders can no longer be policed. Um, it's a cool term. Uh, I'll buy that. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Leatham's a very thoughtful and intelligent man. Um, I, 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 I need a little more help from you in terms oh, of exactly prob- what it is to, it, to kind of... Yeah, I mean, it's probably hard since you haven't, you haven't yeah. read the, the novel re- he's referring to. I must read it. Uh, I'll read it on the plane on the way home. All I, right, I, it's I, a quick I, 700, I, 800 pages. I, I just one of those. Uh, um, no, uh, I, I, I do hereby pledge to read it very soon All right, to you I, personally. I, I can't wait for your review. <laughs> oh, I don't review things. <laughs> but for you review to me. You can give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. I'll email you, okay? Okay, sounds good. So as a child, you you spent a lot of time drawing maps. Yes, I did, and looking at maps. And since you've raised the subject, looking at Ursula Le Guin's maps in particular mm. in, and in Earthsea and the places the narrative never goes to, and I still know the names of islands in Earthsea. It's a fantastic fictional world. And, yeah, I really I ached and burnt to make worlds like that myself. So I blame her. That's probably why. <laughs> She's great. I right. met her four years ago. It's yeah. one of the best encounters of my life and I always treasure it. And I'm so glad she didn't hate the bone clocks. That would have been crushing. <laughs> I, I really thought her her review was an education also at the same time. I, 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 I will read it at some point. Uh, at the moment, I, I just, it's, I've just asked my agent to, to send me 
name of the publication, Positive, Mixed, Disobliging, and if it's positive or disobliging, then the name of the reviewer yeah. for different reasons, obviously. Oh, interesting. Um, but, um, yeah, maps, and, and, and I would draw maps uh, and, and spend weeks on maps of fantasy worlds. Yeah. And uh, I haven't gone the whole hog with that as an adult. Uh, I'm too interested in too many things to devote a lifetime of the creative energy into making my own Middle Earth or Westeros. But in a kind of a way, I am by having... It's, it's, it's not spatially. It's not a spatial map. It's a sort of relationship map by having... Well, that brings us. Oh, the, to that brings us question. to the Uber novel. The Uber novel, and uh, da, da, da. I should, which, I which really thought. is, in a way, your your map. I it think. is in a way. Yeah. Tell, yeah, tell our listeners who have not heard the Enterprise that is David Mitchell's Uber novel. Oh, I I spent about thirty seconds thinking of that name, and I should have spent about three months thinking of it. And I'm not sure if it's the right word, but it's stuck now. I guess I'm stuck with it. Uh, the Uber novel is the name I give for the novel that all of my novels are chapters of. In a way, it's like my fictional meta-life. Uh, if I were a, hor- a horologist, then the bigger project, my, my Uber novel, would be my meta-life. It's not that my novels are prequels and sequels. They're not. They're standalone things that you can read and I hope enjoy and are prompted to think about without reference to anything else I've ever read. Uh, but if you have read of the things I've read, then you will recognise people at different stages of their life coming back, bringing their baggage with them, spilling it out into the new novel, like an overstuffed suitcase. Uh, so it would be unfair to say that, in, for instance, in The Bone Clocks, we see characters from all your other novels appear in, in, in Bone Clocks, that they're not just cameos or little nods to your dedicated readers, but it is part of a larger narrative essentially yeah. I mean it, it's it's a narrative in progress uh, but yeah I, I, I've implanted a few characters from my next book in there who have fairly minor roles but Hugo Lamb who's the joint second major character in this book uh, his appearance here has turned his previous appearance as a 15 year old cousin of Jason Taylor the narrator in Black Swan Green Hugo's one, then I mean he, he he's he he's a precocious kid and he's a little bit mad, bad and dangerous to know, but kind of little did we suspect that just six years later he uh he his life would be radically altered by this supernatural cult. <laughs> so uh if anything, kind of Hugo Lamb's appearance here has made his previous incarnation, his previous I have to be careful with that word now, his previous appearance in Black Swan Green a cameo. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes it goes from major to minor. Sometimes it goes from minor to major. But you have a sense. Even. You have a sense of many of your future novels of what they're about. Uh, about four or five, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Is it? It is. Really? Yeah, I love I mean, that. I thought most. I thought loads of writers have really? ideas for future books. It's the first uh, one on this show, I think. Well, then I'm honoured. Yeah. Um, Good job. I have to speed up, though. I mean, they take me about three or four. Years. They take me. Well, the last two have taken four years. And five novels times four. I mean, I'll be 64 before the decks are clear at this rate. I have to speed up. I, I love the the Russian doll quality of this, that your novels are multiple novellas put together and you're on the one hand and then 
your novels are chapters of this larger novel at the same time. I have to be both. It's re- I mean, the first clause is that in the, the sort of the, the prime directive in Star Trek terms is that they uh, are standalone novels. Uh, I, I don't want to get into the business of obliging people to read other things. I right. kind of want someone who's never heard of me to pick up the bone clocks first and really enjoy it. And uh, I think they could. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. In fact, I've met a few people who have, who have said so. I mean, I guess these are people who come to my events. So I don't meet the people who might have picked up and thought, geez, this sucks, because they wouldn't be appearing at my event, I guess. But, uh, but hopefully there's more of the former and fewer of the latter. Well, the interconnectedness in form and and with the characters across novels and even a couple cats that, that weave their way through, ah, through you your novels. Ah, you the cats, you observant man. Yes. Have you spotted the ship? No. Okay, just a little hint. Okay. Hmm. But these, these, this interweaving and along with uh, some characters literally reincarnating yeah. and the tattoo that goes across the ages in, in Cloud Atlas, yeah. it all goes to the theme of connectedness. And I would take that further and say even that there's a theme in your work of, of uh, t- attempts to communicate and communication and, and the failure to communicate as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's archetypal theme number three, uh, number two. Uh, archetypal theme number three would be um, predacity and violence. But I interrupted you, David. That was rude. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. Uh, don't uh, let me throw you off stride. Well, it made me think of the the, the memoir you translated, uh, The Reason I Jumped, mm-hmm. the memoir by the 13-year-old Japanese yeah, boy yeah. who has autism, mm. and which brings up both the issue of translation, which mm. is an issue that you explicitly have in Thousand Autumns, yeah, yeah. Um, and also the, the the issues of autism, which are which both raise the question of how easy it is to translate our own experiences to another human being. How easy or hard is it for a person to translate our experiences and have them be uh, understood by another person? Whether they have autism or even speak the same language, that's a challenge. But it seems like this book foregrounds that challenge even more. It does, doesn't it? It sort of made a leap of metalepsis from the fictional level of reality into the real level of reality that we are talking in right now. I wondered if maybe part of what gravitated you to, towards this translation uh, and also to exploring this theme of interconnectivity was uh, the mysteries of how anybody can share what they're experiencing subjectively with, with another person. Oh, the um, I mean, our motivation for translating The Reason I Jump was much less l- literary than that and much more practical. Uh, we have a son who has autism and 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 this book that my wife who's japanese read in japanese was easily the most helpful text we ever encountered hmm. uh it's still true uh to help us uh, understand what was going on in our son's head uh i mean it's not of course there, there are as many kinds of autism as there are people with autism and i'm not trying to set him up as some sort of Guru who who, who 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 has a complete Rosetta Stone or a skeleton key that will work for work for every aspect of everyone's autism. It's not like that, but it does, for me, establish beyond doubt that the intellectual and imaginative life of people with even pretty severe autism is much, much, much richer than they are able to let us know is the state of their imaginations and intellect. Uh, and when you know that. Just knowing that 
makes you shift your behaviour and attitude towards them. Mm-hmm. And that shift in behaviour and attitude again can, can, can then sort of spark off a virtuous spiral which sort of does encourage you to, ex- say, expose them to more language and to raise your expectations of what they can do. And, and, and our sons responded to that really, really well. So I'm really grateful to that book. It wasn't a thematic exercise at all. However, as you point out, as it happens, uh, the themes in my book are, 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 are here in are here as themes in my life as well. Uh, there's no, I mean, that's probably no accident and no surprise. And you raise your kids in a bilingual home as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, not as a sort of rigid policy. It's just when you're tired, you slip into your mother tongue of course of course and uh and 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 um and you know sort of we want our kids to sort of be exposed to both languages it's a shame not to i mean our son because of his autism is is, is to a large degree non-verbal still but but his comprehension's really good and and, and he probably knows more japanese words than i do hmm. well i mean maybe i'm pushing this thematic issue too too strongly but when i thought of like if on a winter's night a traveler the book that you're in conversation with in cloud atlas is is explicitly uh, looking at the issue of translation and communication with the evil translator in that book i I was curious if bone clocks had a book that it was in conversation with in the way that cloud atlas is in a conversation with calvino and and the number nine dream was in conversation with murakami that's another really good question i've never been asked good one david thank you um the bone clocks is jealous of um the master and margarita mm. but most novels that take the fairly risky sneaky step of combining the political and the fantastic are jealous of master and margarita um possibly in conversation i mean uh, um please don't think that i'm saying my books are as good as these because only an idiot would do that but Independent People by Haldor Laxness this great life tracking uh, novel by uh, by Iceland's only Nobel laureate Haldor Laxness uh, and that also has it's kind of shot through with not quite episodes of the fantastic but moments where in a more sort of Henry James turn of the screw way where, where it might be the mind that's doing it or it might be really happening it's probably the mind but um there's got the bits of icelandic myth in that as well uh and that follows the parabola of a life and and and, and i read that at quite an influential point in writing the bone clocks mm. so maybe i could have those two that's a really good question to ask people though what novel was your novel in conversation with yeah i'll you, use that you myself had a, if you I had may. a pretty quick answer yeah, yeah. That's good. Um, yes, I did have a quick answer, which is interesting. <laughs> it might mean it's true. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you uh, give us a little teaser on what your next novel is going to be about? Uh, a little teaser, since you've been such a thoughtful interviewer. Um, you mentioned way back at the beginning that this novel was going to was originally going to be made of seventy short stories. It was. I got to about fifteen including a really rich strand that I was really enjoying. Uh, it also has a supernatural theme. Um, but uh, it was going to be five stories spread out throughout the 70. Uh, I, wrote, I wrote the first three, really liked them. 
uh, and kind of know what the last two will be. Marinus will appear in the last one, in this present Iris Fenby manifestation, which is um, the voice who was narrating the section I read. Uh, it, 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 it's kind of a very short spin-off series from The Bone Clocks. Uh, it'll be my first short book, and it'll be fun watching my publishers trying to make a short book look a little bit longer, mm. rather than trying to make a <laughs> thumping great stonker look a little bit shorter. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm going to try and get that done quickly. I just want to give these stories a home because I feel they're mm. too good just to let kind of get flushed away. Uh, or just to kind of languish in my notebooks for the rest of forever. However, after that, uh, I want to get my teeth stuck into a, a heftier thing set in London, Soho, Greenwich Village, maybe a little bit of the West Coast, Laurel Canyon maybe, in the late 1960s, with a coda in the present day. But uh, beyond that, it's best not to say too much, otherwise people hear and it then gets a Wikipedia page, <laughs> and then I might change my mind and leave this sort of, leave these, these sort of desiccated embryos uh, of ideas that were never used, um, yeah. scattered throughout cyberspace. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Between the Covers, David. Oh, it's a, it's a real joy, David. Thank you very much for your time. We were talking today to David Mitchell about his latest novel, Bone Clocks. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs> <laughs>